The Well is a gospel-centered church located in Boulder, Colorado. We exist to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. For more information about The Well, please visit us online at www.boulderwell.org. All right, well, this is really fun. I hope it's fun for you as well. We've got some great questions going on. Uh, keep thinking about this stuff. This next session is going to be focused on kind of those application things, reflective things, all that stuff we've got going on today. So uh, come on up and let's get after that. The Reformation spawned some really, really significant developments. So what I want to do is walk through three of these, and then I'll just let you reflect on how they resonate with your experience personally and the experience of this church corporately. In the 17th century, uh, the Lutheran church in Germany developed into what we might call ecclesiastical or church rigidity and really doctrinal rigidity. And so by the early years of the 17th century in Germany, there was a feeling that Lutheranism, started by Luther, you know, in the 16th century, had developed or devolved into a Protestant version of dead orthodoxy. In other words, people would come to church and they'd go through the motions and they'd hear the sermon and they'd sing the songs and there was no spiritual life. So some people in that tradition began to pray and preach reform. The first of these was a pastor, a Lutheran pastor by the name of Philip Jacob Spainer, and you can see the dates there, 1635 to 1705. He recognized the dead orthodoxy of his own congregation. He'd show up on Sunday and everybody was spiritually dead. So he started to pray that the Holy Spirit would really work, and he just started to preach the gospel and preach the Bible. And he stressed personal conversion, spiritual renewal. In other words, you personally need to have a relationship with Jesus. You can't just come to church and do Christianity. You've got to be, to use that language from John 3, you've got to be born again. And he wanted spiritual renewal. Well, one of the younger members of his congregation was a young guy by the name of Augusta Franke. Well, he got this idea of personal commitment, personal conversion, spiritual renewal. And then eventually, he went on and became a professor at the University of Holly in Germany. Now, you have to remember, in, in the early modern period, universities were always designed to train clergy. They weren't there designed to you know, train you in the social sciences or you know, psychology or whatever. They were designed to train clergy. So Franca became this pietistic pastor who began to train hundreds over the years of clergy in the Lutheran tradition in what became known as pietism. Personal conversion, spiritual renewal, the idea of preaching the Bible, calling people to faith in Christ. And then he began to place them into all these different parishes throughout Germany. Well, one of the people that was influenced by both Spainer and then eventually Franca was a guy by the name of Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He grew up in the Lutheran church, but at one point he was taking a tour through an art museum and he saw that painting of the dying Christ. Uh, Behold the man. And he felt like the Holy Spirit said to him, Jesus has done all this for you. What have you ever done for him? And Zinzendorf was kind of a rich nobleman and he realized, you know, I, I've, I've said that I've confessed faith in Jesus, but I've never really done anything for him. And he kind of, in a sense, recommitted his life at that point. And he became the promoter of this movement 
that developed out of 17th century Lutheranism called Pietism. This is the beginning to answer one of your questions back here of where Protestant global missions started. In other words, Protestants weren't about global missions until Pietism in the 17th century. There are a number of reasons why, but the main ones were in the 16th century, Protestants were trying to survive. They were under huge pressure from Roman Catholics for about a century. And then we had what we call the wars of religion, which were really bad. Well, Zinzendorf forms on his, he, he, like I said, he was a nobleman. He owned all this land, all this estate in, in what today we would call Eastern Europe called Herrenhut. And he got these Moravians to come and he trained these Moravians. And then he sent them out in global missions. He sent them out to the Jews. He sent them out to the oppressed African slaves. He sent them out to lepers. But Zinzendorf is the guy. And this is the beginning of Protestant global missions. In other words, at this point now, Protestants will start to think about missions outside of their own country, their own context. Let me summarize pietism here. Here were its main emphases. And this is a major stream coming out of the Lutheran tradition, the Reformation. The main emphases of pietism were personal Bible study, individual and corporate prayer, small group fellowship, and foreign missions. You have a small smile on your face. Does that sound familiar? Who does that sound like? It sounds like us! It sounds like us, and here's the reason why. This is part of who you and I are at the well in 2017. We are part of a larger Protestant tradition. We are part of a movement in North America called evangelicalism. And within evangelicalism, pietism bleeds straight into that. This sounds like us because this is part of our tradition and history. This, this is why church history is so important. <clears throat> in other words, all of us, I mean, you see those advertisements on TV for Ancestry.com, you know, go find your DNA and find out, you know, who, you're not really who you thought you were, okay? Because your family history is really, this is part of our family history. This is part of who we are today as Protestant Reformed Christians in Boulder, Colorado in 2017 at the well. Pietism is part and partial of who we are. This comes out of the Lutheran tradition of the Reformation. Now, I mentioned Puritanism a few moments ago as part of the Church of England. Let me take some time here and unpack this at this point, partly because this is my research field and partly because it's really fun and partly because I love the Puritans. Uh, Elizabeth I, who was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. As I said, Henry divorced Catherine, even though they had Princess Mary as their daughter, and he divorced Anne, and then Catherine eventually died, and Henry put Mary at a country estate out in England, a long ways away from court, and didn't want to see her ever again. Henry marries Anne Boleyn, and she gives birth to Elizabeth in 1533. So now it's Princess Elizabeth, but see, Henry still does not have his male heir. And so Anne Boleyn, who was probably a Protestant and started to promote Protestant thought at court and through some of the parishes of England, she eventually runs afoul with both Henry as her husband and the Roman Catholic element at court that hated her. And many of the people in England hated her because they saw her as, I'll use their language, a whore and a usurper. 
And so eventually charges were brought against Anne Boleyn that she was an adulteress. And she, I don't think she was. And in fact, she went, literally went to her death. They cut her head off. She literally went to the block saying, I am a faithful wife to the king. I've never committed adultery. Well, Henry had Anne killed. And there was another young maid at court by the name of Jane Seymour. And so what Henry did was, as soon as he had Anne killed, he then married Jane. Jane got pregnant, and she gave birth, this time, to the male heir, Edward VI. Now, it's Jane Seymour, the queen, not Jane Seymour, the actress. Okay, get it, get it, get it. Well, the thing was, Jane got sick not long after Edward was born, and she died. Well, now Henry has three children. The Princess Mary, who's over here, the Princess Elizabeth, who's over here, and Prince Edward, who's now the royal heir, Edward VI. Now, just a little caveat here, because it's a soap opera, but it's fun. Okay, i got to tell you about the rest of Henry VIII. This is funny. Okay, well, he needs another wife, and so his chief minister is a guy by the name of Thomas Cromwell, long-distant relative of Oliver Cromwell. Well, Thomas Cromwell was a really, really strong Protestant. He had the New Testament memorized. He's an incredibly gifted, competent person, and he's trying to create an alliance politically between Henry and England and the German Lutheran princes up in northern Germany. One of those princes was the Prince of Cleves. And in order to seal the political alliance between England and what was called the Schmalkaldic League, or these German princes, they would do that through marriages, arranged marriages. And so the Prince of Cleves says, I have a daughter, her name is Anne, and she would be a great wife for the king. And so Cromwell sends a message to Henry. We have potential for a political marriage here with Anne of Cleves. And so Henry says, okay, send me a portrait. You have to remember, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have photography, but they had painters who were, quote unquote, quite good. And so Cromwell says, make it really good. And so the painter paints a portrait of Anne of Cleves. And I think it's still, I think you can see it like in the Philadelphia Museum of Art or something. It's, they still, it's still the original is there. But it was like today, you've seen glamour photos. They, yeah, he made it look like a glamour photo. So Henry goes, great, send her over. So Anne of Cleves shows up in England, and they're about to do the wedding. And Henry still hasn't seen the bride. He's just going off the picture. Well, she shows up at the wedding. And Henry, he goes through the ceremony, but he won't consummate the marriage. In fact, literally after the ceremony's over, he tells his, his, his people around him, you know, just put her at a country estate. She pleases me not. And at that point, he gets furious with Cromwell and due to some other Roman Catholic elements of court, Cromwell gets killed. In other words, don't get the wrong spouse for your boss, okay? That's the lesson there. So he divorces Anne of Cleves. Well, then there's another young maid at court, and her name is Catherine Howard, and Henry's infatuated with her. And she's, excuse me, ladies, I'm just going to use the term. Apparently, by all accounts, she was really hot. So Henry, Henry marries her. Here's the problem with Catherine Howard. She's sleeping with everybody at court. Everybody. And Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's at court on and off, hears these rumors, and he has spies everywhere. And so they start to get names and dates and locations. I mean, he just he creates a ledger of all her immorality. And he eventually takes it to the king, and Henry is heartbroken. He has no clue. And so he has her killed. Well, then, 
it's getting late in his life and Henry's health is going bad. And one of his administrators suggests this older, very sophisticated, very well-educated, very, very smart woman, Catherine Parr. And so Henry marries Catherine Parr, and she eventually brings the children back to court, Mary and Elizabeth and Edward, and she kind of takes you know, care of Henry in his last few years, and he, it was a disaster. He kind of looked like Mr. Potato Head at the end of his life. It was really, really bad. So, <clears throat> little church history lesson here related to, well, English history related to church history. Here's how you remember the wives of Henry VIII. Divorced, killed, died, divorced, killed, survived. That's how you remember that, that. That's the soap opera. My, my wife's kind of an amateur tutor historian. She loves all this stuff. And they continue to produce books and stuff and articles and movies about the Tudor era. And Melanie says, she goes, the reason why is because it's a soap opera and we like soap operas. And it was. Now, all of that to say, when Henry dies, Edward becomes king. And he's extremely religious and extremely reformed. He's kind of a royal version of Matt Patrick and Chase, okay? And they call him the young Josiah. And he wants to implement Protestant reform throughout the country. So they begin to implement Protestant reform. And he rules from 1547 to 1553. But when he turns 16, he gets pneumonia. And you got to remember, it's the early modern era. They don't have antibiotics. And they, he gets really sick, and they all know he's dying. Well, the next person in line for the throne is Princess Mary, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of Isabella and Ferdinand. She's a fervent Roman Catholic. Well, Edward dies. Mary becomes queen to popular acclaim, by the way, because she's the daughter of, of Henry. And she reverts the country back to Roman Catholicism. And then there were a group of Protestants who fled the country, and there were other group of Protestants who got killed by her, and she becomes known popularly as Bloody Mary because she killed over 300 Protestant men and women. She burned them at the stake because of heresy. Now, once again, that's hard for us to get our heads wrapped around, but she thought that they were, they were like a cancer on the body politic. You need to kill them. Well, she gets cancer in 1558 and dies, and then Elizabeth ascends to the throne. She's the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn, and Elizabeth wanted a mildly and she stressed this Protestant church, the Via Medea, the middle way. Well, this frustrated all the Reformed Protestants within her realm. Uh, I have four bishops that I studied, and they were my guys, I call them my guys, and they were all really, really Reformed, and they were bishops. And she frustrated the crud out of them because they wanted to make the country Reformed again like it had been under Edward. Well, she frustrates them, and then there's a younger group that comes after them, the next generation, and they become known as the Puritans. As I said, they want to purify the Church of England of all its papal Romish past. And they were really into Reformed doctrine, and they really wanted to change the outward structure of the Church completely. Well, they run afoul of the Queen, and she's in charge. And so what happens is, eventually they get pushed underground. And by the 1590s, Puritanism in England becomes a movement, basically, of pastoral reform pastoral theology. The most prominent example of this was a guy by the name of William Perkins. He's the one who develops covenant theology. Now, here are the, the big points, and I'm at the really macro level here. Here's what Perkins said. Humanity in general is compelled to obey God by a covenant of works, but due to sin finds it impossible. In other words, quote Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks God, no, not one. In other words, 
you and I in our natural state cannot please God. We cannot do that because we have a sinful, corrupt nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. Well, Perkins believed that and went on and said, it's only by God's covenant of grace that's sealed in Christ, remember, solus Christus, that humanity can escape sin and death and hell. It's only in Christ and the covenant of grace that people are able to be saved, that men and women and children can be saved. And so out of that comes good works of gratitude. In other words, there's nothing you or I could do to please God on our own. God saves us totally unmerited in Jesus because he loves us. There's nothing we can do to please him. But once we're saved, then we start to love people and we start to you know, build our marriages and love on our kids and give our money and reach the lost and promote missions. We do all these things out of gratitude because God saved us. And that's Perkins and the development of covenant theology. Now, what happens is the Puritans were eventually persecuted by the government during the last years of Elizabeth's reign and then she dies in 1603, and she's succeeded by James I, or James V of Scotland, who becomes James I of England. And so thousands of Puritans emigrate from England to this new place across the, the ocean called North America in the 1620s and 1630s. One of the preeminent Puritans who did that was John Winthrop. He was the first governor of Massachusetts Bay, He's the guy who helped draft the Mayflower Compact. And you can still read that today. And essentially what the Mayflower Compact does is it says we are a community of God's people and we have covenanted together under the grace of God to promote and provide for each other in this new land. And here's the thing about the Puritans. They saw themselves coming to the new world to set up a brand new, and I want to stress this, brand new Christian civilization of the truly converted because they looked back at England and they said, well, they say they're a Christian country, but they're reprobates. They're unregenerate. It's horrible. We're coming here to the new world and we're going to set up a genuine Christian community, a genuine Christian civilization where everybody's regenerate. Now, here's the, here's the ironic thing. They were all incredibly strong Calvinists who believed in election. Well, how can you know that everybody in your community is elect? Well, you can't. Well, Puritanism, by its nature, spawned lots of dissidents early, early on. But here's what I want you to know about Puritanism. They stressed enormously the reading, teaching, and preaching of the Bible. Women in Puritan New England could not go to school. But from the time they were two on, they were taught to read. So they could read the Bible and teach it to their children to read the Bible. And women in Puritan New England had actually enormous things they were responsible for, running vast households, taking care of things. But Puritans also stressed education. Harvard College was founded in 1636. It was founded to prepare men for Christian ministry to preach the Word of God, and they had a classical education. When you went to Harvard, you learned Hebrew, you learned Greek, you learned Latin, you studied Bible, you studied theology because you were going to teach people the Scripture. The main emphases of Puritanism, Bible reading, theological education, and preaching. In an average lifetime, a Puritan man or woman would probably hear between nine to 12,000 sermons and theological lectures. You've got to remember this. They didn't have Facebook, okay? 
This was the media of the day. So you'd go to church and you'd listen to theological lectures, you'd listen to sermons, and Puritan sermons could go on for a long, long time. A long time. And they believed in education. <clears throat> One of the other things they stressed, though, was the brevity of life. Um, Harry Stout, who is uh, one of our best scholars of American Puritanism, was once asked this, how has studying the Puritans affected you personally? And I thought his answer was interesting. He says, you can't read the number of Puritans I've, uh, Puritan sermons I've read and not confront the central question of those sermons. Your mortality. The Puritans knew that this life doesn't go on forever, and that you need to live your life in the shadow of eternity. And then he says this, it's frightening to confront your mortality. Studying the Puritans made me confront what we try so hard to avoid in our society. But it also confirmed in me the sense that there needs to be an eternal hope. So, does any of that Sound familiar? Well, in this church, yeah, that's why you're here. I mean, this, listen, this is a Puritan church in a lot of ways. Read the Bible, do theology, get a THM, yeah. Train up the laity in church history. God bless all of you, you know. May, may the well increase enormously, okay? Now, let, let me back up here. Oh, sorry. I gotta set the stage for properly. Maybe I'll not be able to. There we go. Let me talk about revivalism in the 17th and 18th century. In the late 17th century, the Church of England began to reflect what today we call the Anglican tradition. Puritans were marginalized and then exiled. Well, in the Anglican tradition, preaching was really downplayed. Elizabeth never liked preaching. Uh, James and then his son Charles didn't like preaching, the, the first Stuart kings. And so what they began to do in terms of church was to emphasize the visual and the sensual. And you can see, this is a picture of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And you notice, I mean, it's ornate. It's beautiful. I mean, this is a Protestant cathedral. But it's ornate. It's beautiful. It's, it's not like most Protestant churches you would ever find in North America today. This is an example, architecturally, of the Anglican tradition. But by the latter part of the 17th and early part of the 18th century in England, well, come on now. I might have to just speak from this side here. What happened was the majority of people were marginalized from the Anglican tradition, especially the lower classes. Well, this is where we run into John Wesley. Uh, Wesley was a pastor's kid. His dad was an Anglican vicar, Anglican pastor. His mother, Susanna, gave birth, I think, to 17 children. He was one of 17. Wow. And he eventually goes to Oxford with his brother, Charles. And they, they're really, really religious, really, really devoted. And they form what's called the Holy Club there. Well, yeah, I mean, they're all about spiritual formation and being really religious and everything. And, the, and they're kind of mocked by the other students because they're so devout. Well, Wesley leaves England in 1735, 1736, and he crosses the Atlantic on a boat. And the boat is filled with these Moravians, and the boat encounters this enormous storm, and Wesley's terrified, which 
to be honest, if I was on that boat in the North Atlantic and it was a little shaky wooden boat, I'd be terrified too. But the Moravians, the men, women, children are up on deck and they're singing hymns of praise to God in the middle of the storm. And later, Wesley pulls aside the leader and he says, weren't you scared? And the leader goes, no. Weren't your women and children scared? No. Why weren't you scared? Because we know that Jesus has us. And if we die, that's his will. And Wesley's freaked out by that. He's freaked out because he's terrified. Well, he gets to Georgia, which is a colony, and he's an Anglican clergyman. He's like an Anglican church plant, and he gets there. And one of the guys in his parish, early on, asks him, do you know, at a personal level, the saving love of Jesus? And Wesley says it in his diary, I told him yes, but I don't think it was true. In other words, he's got all the language. He's a clergyman. He's doing an Anglican church plant, and he's not sure he really knows Jesus. Well, then what happens is things blow up. He starts to date this young woman in his parish, and he's, you know, he's pretty hot and heavy after her. Well, she finally disses him. I'm done with you, John. So he's heartbroken. But remember, he's the Anglican vicar, and in the Anglican tradition, every Sunday you come forward for communion. You come forward, and the vicar gives you communion. Well, a couple of weeks later, she comes to church with her new boyfriend. Wesley won't serve them communion. <laughs> he won't. Well, the parish goes nuts, and they fire him. And he gets fired. He gets fired, and he gets on a boat, and he goes back to England, and he's totally dejected, a complete failure. He just, you know, he just says, hey, this is horrible. Well, then what happens is he goes to a Bible study in London. And they're at this Bible study, and they're reading Luther's commentary on Romans. And in the preface, Luther talks about being saved by faith alone. And for some strange reason, Wesley says later in that night in his journal, I felt my heart warm, strangely warm, and that I now was truly a son of God, loved by the Savior. And he gets converted. Gets converted. Well, Wesley was friends with this guy by the name of George Whitfield. And Whitfield had been trained as an actor on the English stage. Well, Whitfield decides that he wants to become a traveling evangelist. And so what Whitfield discovered was there were thousands and thousands of English men and English women out in these parishes who weren't really even going to parish church anymore because it was kind of an upper-class thing and they felt excluded and the, the vicars didn't care about them. And so Whitfield says, well, these are, these are lost souls. And he goes out into the fields and starts to preach. Well, Whitfield, and I'll come, come back to this in a minute, Whitfield was an amazing preacher, probably one of the two or three best preachers in the history of Christianity. I mean, he, he, by all accounts, he could project his voice hundreds of yards. And he was just amazing. Well, he starts to win thousands, thousands of people to Christ. And he persuades Wesley to join him. Now, Wesley, you've got to remember, he's an ordained Anglican clergyman. He doesn't want to separate from the Church of England. And so he tries, he tries to go into all these Anglican parishes and preach. <clears throat> Listen to this. I want to, I want to share this with you. And if you guys ever get discouraged, just remember this. This is from Wesley's diary. This is fascinating. So stick with me. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, which was an Anglican parish, was asked to not come back anymore. 
Sunday night, May 5th, preached at St. John's, another Anglican parish. Deacon said, get out and stay out. <laughs> Sunday morning, May 12th, the following week, preached at St. Jude's, can't go back there either. Sunday night, May 12th, preached at St. George, got kicked out again. Sunday, May 9th, preached at St. Somebody Else's, deacons called the special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. See, the reason he's getting kicked out is he's talking about revival and Jesus, and you've got to have a personal relationship, and you need to come to the Savior, and you're a sinner, and they, they didn't want to hear it. Sunday morning, May 26th, preached in a meadow, got chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the services. <laughs> now, now listen to this. This is fascinating. Sunday morning, June 2nd, preached out at the edge of town, got kicked off the highway. Sunday afternoon, June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in a pastor. 10,000 came to hear me. Thousands were converted. Revival! That's revival! Revival's going on there. So Wesley becomes a revivalist, and Whitfield eventually travels to America, and I'll talk about him in a minute. So Wesley takes over the revival in England, and now he's got all these converts he's winning, literally hundreds and thousands of people, and he organizes his converts into what we call societies, which are groups of about 75 to 100, and then eventually classes, 10 to 12 people. Here's what Wesley stressed. Individual conversion. You've got to know Jesus personally. Not just in word, but in your heart. Personal involvement in a class. Small group for discipleship and personal growth. In other words, and Wesley was really, really clear about this. If you weren't in one of his classes, he would tell you to your face, well, then you're not saved. You're not saved. You don't want to be part of Christian fellowship. And then disciplined Christian living, specifically in terms of managing your work and what little wealth you had. And here's what happened in the Wesleyan revival in England over a series of decades. Most of Wesley's converts were lower class. But within 10 to 20 years, they all moved in the middle and sometimes upper classes because they started to work really hard. They quit drinking. They started to really develop good families. They became really frugal. They'd save their money. They'd invest their money. And over time, they'd become wealthy. And then Wesley was faced with another dilemma. And the dilemma was, he said, I've never seen anywhere where people were rich where they were really fervent for Jesus. And yet all his converts, because he was so effective at discipling them, became really, really good at that. Now, they were eventually labeled Methodists because Wesley was using new methods to win people to Christ, going outside the boundaries of the established church, putting them in societies and classes, really emphasizing discipleship at a hardcore level. And then eventually, the Wesleyan revival came to North America and it exploded because Wesley and his followers created what we call circuit riders. Circuit riders were men who were trained to ride the frontier. They'd go out and they'd ride certain circuits. They'd win people to Christ, put them in classes, establish churches, and then go back and visit them. And the Wesleyan revival in North America exploded. And by the late 18th century, Wesley was forced to create a new denomination in North America called the Methodists. Now, let me skip to North America here for just a moment. In 1735 in Northampton, Massachusetts, there was a parish there, and the pastor was Jonathan Edwards. It had been his grandfather 
Solomon Stoddard Parish, and he inherited it. Well, in 1735, Edwards started to preach revival. And by revival, what he meant was coming to personal faith in Christ. Now, by all counts, two things. Edwards was probably the smartest American who's ever lived. And if you include people like Thomas Jefferson in that, that's pretty significant. But, but, but even atheistic philosophers will, will argue Edwards was probably the smartest American who ever lived. But Edwards was a pretty, he wasn't exactly scintillating in his preaching. He would be in his pulpit, which was high up in Northampton in the parish, and he would you know, read with his glasses like this, and he would just kind of read from his sermon manuscript. Well, you've probably come across in an American lit class his sermon that's viewed as horrible example, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, when Edwards preached that sermon, by all counts, people in the church stood up and they grabbed the pillars of the church or the walls of the church. And Edwards is just reading his manuscript. He's just reading it through. And people are going, stop, stop, stop. And people were crying and wailing. Edwards gave an invitation at the end, and all these people came forward to receive Christ. Now, here's what they never, ever, ever tell you in an American literature class. The next week, Edwards preached a sermon. Sinners in the hands of a loving God. And as he was preaching, people grabbed the pillars. Stop! 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 And a revival broke out. This was the beginning of what we call in American Christian history... The Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening. It stressed personal conversion to Jesus and often created an intense emotional fervor. Now, I mentioned Whitfield a few moments ago. Whitfield was started in England, but eventually he came to North America. In North America in the 1740s, Whitfield became the first American celebrity. I always describe him as a combination of Billy Graham and Taylor Swift. He was. Enormously gifted, great preacher, and everybody knew him, just like everybody knows Taylor, and she's enormously gifted. And as I said, Whitfield could project his voice hundreds of yards. Word has it that he spoke in tongues. German immigrants who had just come to America, when they would listen to Whitfield preach, they knew no English. They said that they could understand him perfectly. And he gathered huge, huge crowds. He preached in every single colony. I think he came to America three times. He preached in every single colony during his trips to America. Most historians estimate that in the 1740s, by 1750, there were probably somewhere between three and three and a half million people living in the 13 colonies, including African-American slaves. They think Whitfield preached to at least 95% of them on one occasion. And so you have this great awakening breaking out. Thousands of people were converted. And America had the foundation, not of a Christian country, but of a Christian worldview because of the great awakening. Now, here's what revivalism always stressed. Personal conversion. Get up out of your seat. I want you to get up out of your seat. I want you to come down. I want you to receive Jesus. Personal conversion. Revivalism always stressed that. Born again. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. And once again, I ask you, does that sound familiar? Yes. You stress that at this church. Evangelicalism stresses that. So as you kind of look at the big picture here, you see our movement, 
that the well is a part of is really influenced by pietism, by puritanism, by revivalism. Those parts, those all make us who we are. <clears throat> now, let me talk about downsides of the Reformation in general and the Reformation tradition. And I'm just going to give you a couple. One of the unintended consequences of the Reformation Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer, Martin Bootser, the, the reformers of the 16th century, would have never ever said they intended this, and they didn't. But it was one of the unintended consequences of the Reformation, especially through pietism and revivalism as those developed out. And that is, we have this incredibly strong tendency to be really, really, really individualistic in our Christianity. Now, some of that's a reflection of American civilization, because we're intensely individualistic. But some of that's a reflection of pietism and revivalism. It's me and God. It's me and God. As long as I kind of have this personal relationship with Jesus, everything is okay. Uh, well, yeah, at one level. But when you read the New Testament, you just don't see people who in the New Testament who are followers of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, who are out here all by themselves saying it's just me and... They, you don't see that. You don't see them. <clears throat> a second downside. With the creation of literally thousands of Protestant groups and churches, it unintentionally weakened our ecclesiology, the doctrine and practice of the church. In the 16th century, here's what the papacy told all these revolting Protestants. If you separate yourself from the Church of Rome, and you remove yourself from the teaching magisterium of the papacy who decides proper doctrine and proper practice, if you remove yourself from that and you give the Bible to everyone in their own language, which is exactly what Luther did, he quickly wrote the whole Bible in German. It was a brilliant translation, and then they printed it out and sent it all over, and pretty soon you had vernacular translations all over. The papacy said this, if you give everybody a Bible in their own language, you'll have a thousand different churches. They were wrong. You give the Bible to everybody in their own language, you have a zillion different churches. Now, there are some upsides to that, but one of the downsides is it's weakened our view of the church. And in America, because once again, we believe in freedom of religion and we're pretty individualistic and we kind of like to come and go, and we're an incredibly mobile society, by the way. America's always been a really mobile society. But in North America, people move on average every four years. So for pastors, what that means is about every five or six years, your congregation's turning over. Well, the problem with that is we see this in Protestant divisions, low levels of loyalty to the church. So here's what I would tell you. Once again, I'm going to put my pastor hat on here because I'm a pastor and I love the church. If you support the leadership of this church and you like this church, unless they do something really, really stupid, and I don't think these guys are going to do that because if they do, we'll kick their butts, okay? They're just really good leaders and preachers. If you think they're really good leaders and preachers and you like this church, you should be totally loyal to this church. You should join this church. You should support this church. You should serve in and through this church. You should give lots of money to this church. I'm serious. Bill Hybels was so right. He said this 30 years ago, and he was so right. The local church is the hope of the world. Thank you for listening to The Well Podcast. 
for resources and information on how you can support our mission to proclaim the gospel and make disciples, please visit us online at www.boulderwell.org.